0: Section 11 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tulloch. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Ralph Cudworth, Christian Philosophy in Conflict with Materialism, Part 2. From this time forwards there can barely be traced any outline of circumstance in Cudworth's life. The living to which he was appointed, two years after the Restoration, was the vicarage of Ashwell in Hertfordshire but it does not appear whether he ever settled there. Birch's account, sufficiently imperfect up to this point, now passes into mere desultory confusion, out of which it is impossible to extort any sequence of narrative. We are told that he was formally admitted to his living in the end of 1662, but we get no further trace of him till the beginning of 1665. Then we have a series of letters, one from Cudworth himself to Worthington, and others from Moore to Worthington, which served to throw some light on his intellectual plans and labors. He had reverted to his former speculations, and was busy with his treatise on Moral Good and Evil. Probably the course of thought since the Restoration had alarmed him, and reawakened all his anxiety to clear up the essential idea of morality, and place its fundamental principles on a rational basis. But he seems to have worked slowly, and halted frequently in his progress. In the meantime, the subject was taken up by Moore at the earnest entreaty of certain friends, and our author seemed likely to be forestalled in the great design of his life. His anxiety on this score is the subject of his letter to Worthington, which bears the date of January 1665. Natural as his feelings may have been, there is something undignified in their mode of expression, and the curious jealousy which he betrays lest more should really anticipate him. Quote, You know, I have had this design concerning good and evil, or natural ethics, a great while, which I begun above a year ago, when I made the first sermon in the chapel about the argument, to study over anew and dispatch a discourse about it. No man had so frequently exhorted me to it, and so earnestly, as this friend. But about three months since, unexpectedly, he told me on a sudden he had begun a discourse on the same argument. The next day, in writing... I imparted my mind more fully and plainly to him, whereupon he came to me and told me he would speak with me about it after a day or two. So he did, and then excused the business, that he could not tell whether I would dispatch and finish it or no, because I had been so long about it, that Mr. Fullwood and Mr. Jenks had solicited him to do this, and that you were very glad that he would undertake it. But now he understood I was resolved to go through with it, he was very glad of it, that he would desist and throw his into a corner." All this I impart to you privately, because a common friend. I have not spoken to anybody else but Mr. Standish, and something to Mr. Jenks and Fullwood." Moore certainly appears in the higher light in this correspondence. He seems unaffectedly anxious that Cudworth should do the work rather than himself. His reluctance to enter upon it, and his deference to the claims of his friend, are frank and genuine. In his second letter, he gives a detailed account of all the circumstances which led to his writing himself an ethical treatise, how little at first he relished the idea, but how gradually his mind was attracted by it, as well as his conscience moved by the importunity of his friends. Footnote. He repeats the same account virtually in his address ad lectorum, prefixed to his Enchiridion Ethicum, published in 1667. End of footnote nothing would content them but his quote, "setting upon the work as it was uncertain when dr cudworths would come out" close quote. and the effect of so much earnestness was that he awoke one morning with all the subject on his mind and began seriously to think of a task thus providentially presented to him crossing as it did the order of his studies and other great and innocent pleasures which he had promised himself in following out this order we do not learn the special causes which retarded the publication of cudworths work there may have been some difficulty regarding the publication as in the case of his later great work a difficulty which Moore's work may have escaped as being in latin or the size of the work as was the fashion of all his writing may have so grown upon him as to impede its progress there is a discourse by him on moral good and evil existing in manuscript and extending in several folios to nearly a thousand pages there is further a manuscript containing the heads of another book of morality which seems to have been especially intended in refutation of Hobbes. These manuscripts, with others, including a Discourse on Liberty and Necessity, probably the same since published under a title of A Treatise of Free Will, and the Treatise on Daniel's Seventy Weeks, already referred to, are preserved in the British Museum. The story of Cudworth's manuscripts, extracted from the Biographia Britannica, will be found by the reader in the advertisement prefixed to the Brief Treatise of Free Will, 1837, which is merely a definite expansion of thoughts on this subject, more or less found in his larger and better known works. And, lastly, there is his well-known treatise concerning eternal and immutable morality, which was not given to the public till almost half a century after his death, in 1731, when it was edited from papers in possession of his grandson, Sir Francis Cudworth Masham, by Dr. Chandler, then Bishop of Durham. It is difficult to say to which of these treatises the correspondence with Worthington refers. The immutable morality is generally assumed, in accordance with Dr. Chandler's statements in the preface, to have been composed after the publication of The Intellectual System. And in this case, the larger discourse, still in manuscript, on moral good and evil, the title of which more strictly corresponds to his own language in writing to Worthington, would probably be the work on which he was occupied in 1665. The Heads of Another Book of Morality, so far as they are given in detail by Birch, do not necessarily indicate a separate treatise. But the question is of little importance. Cudworth's position as a moralist is abundantly apparent in his two great works, and it is hardly possible that any further light would be thrown upon it by the publication of any of his manuscripts. Valuable as all his intellectual work is, in a certain sense, he is not one of those authors whose writings are to be prized merely for themselves. His voluminousness was a literary habit. It did not arise from the growth or expansiveness of his thought, but from the discursiveness of his mind, and the curious stores of learning at his command. The reader, for the most part, can gather the substance of his argument, or the pith of his meaning, in comparatively short compass the immutable morality therefore may certainly be held in conjunction with his larger work to give us a complete view of his moral system the brief treatise of free will recently published (1837), adds nothing to its essential meaning the publication of the true intellectual system of the universe fills up for the reader what remains of cudworth's life this great work so far as it was ever finished for it remained an immense fragment was finished and ready to be published in 1671. The Imprimator, by Dr. Samuel Parker, chaplain to Sheldon, now promoted to be Archbishop, bears the date of May ninth in that year. But its publication was delayed till 1678 on account of great opposition from some of the courtiers of King Charles II, who endeavored to destroy the reputation of it when it was first published. Birch, who gives us this information, adds in characteristic style, quote, Irreligion began now to lift up its head, and the progress of it was opposed by no person with greater force and learning than by our author. Close quote. The course of thought, as well as the tone of society, had greatly altered since the days of the Commonwealth. Tendencies, which were then only beginning to show themselves, had grown to maturity. Hobbes's great work, published in 1651, reflects the course of change in the public mind as it helped greatly to advance it. The reader of the Leviathan now is apt to be struck mainly by the vigor and life of its speculative delineations, and no philosophical work was ever written with more power and liveliness. But, after all, nothing is more remarkable in it than its political spirit and design. It aimed to set up a new order of things, or rather an old order in a new form. The age had become sick of theological controversy and of the struggles after a higher development of religious and political liberty many had never shared in its religious aspirations, and the very intensity of those aspirations, and the fierce conflicts which they provoked, had served to exhaust them. Thus, at length, there was not only a lull, but a resurgence in the tide of spiritual and political emotion. Men's minds turned from the chaotic picture of warring sects, a dilapidated church, and a commonwealth which, however strong in the strong hands which ruled it, had failed to work itself into any constitutional form to the old ideas of authority which had once bound the national life in firm cords of unity and controlled the action of both church and state hobbes is one of the most significant expressions of the spirit of reaction in the higher mind of england in the second half of the seventeenth century There is nothing deeper in him than disgust of religious zeal and contentiousness, and the assertion of an inviolable rule binding the whole sphere of religion and morality as well as politics. But the reaction, as might have been expected, ran to excess. The ruin of dreams inspired by religious enthusiasm proved fatal not only to religious ambition, but in many respects to moral and spiritual life. Men began to doubt of the reality of that which had promised so much and done so little. They despaired of a religious philosophy or of any theory fitted to organize and bind into one the higher and lower facts of human life. This is always the danger of such a period of national subsidence. Not only are religious ideals shattered, broken in their very attempt to accomplish too much, but religion itself suffers and becomes discredited by the absurdities and failures which mark its course. Never was this more signally illustrated than after the Restoration. The disgust with which men turned from the religious controversies of the preceding period not only vented itself in weariness and ridicule of what had gone before, but in a widespread distrust of spiritual verities altogether. To higher minds, who preserved alive their power of faith as well as of thought, this was the ominous feature of the times, and excited their chief anxiety. They could see below the superficial drifts of opinion With all their tendency towards some new form of external authority, deep springs of unbelief. They saw such tendencies in Hobbes, with all his avowed conservatism in church and state. Reactionary and authoritative in the design of his speculations, it was evident to them that their real drift was to undermine the foundations of religious truth, and under a show of respect for it, to leave no rational basis for religion at all. They were not deceived, as some modern critics have been, by the religious form and phraseology of his writings. They looked beyond the surface of his dogmatisms to their radical spirit and meaning, and drew the unhesitating conclusion that a philosophy which left no divine capacity in human nature was essentially unchristian and could only be met by a counter-philosophy which went to the depths of human thought and belief. This was the great task now essayed by Cudworth, as it had been long pondered by him no one there is reason to believe had seen earlier as no one estimated more clearly and fully the force of the irreligious movement further no one had studied more closely the dogmatic and formal enthusiasms which had so long dominated the religious mind of england or recognized more the inevitable tendency to reaction which lay in them his broad and keen rational insight and deep though quiet seriousness discerned the full nature of the crisis and had long done so. Slowly and heavily, but surely, his mind had been working for years at the special problems raised by the penetrating and bold genius of Hobbes, so fitly corresponding to the spirit of an age at once reactionary and sceptical. The publication of his great work, The Intellectual System of the Universe, in 1678, was the outcome of his long-gathered and laboriously pondered speculation on the subject. The reception of the work was such as might have been expected in the evil times on which it had fallen. Delayed in its issue by courtier intrigues, it was assailed almost as soon as made public by superficial and unthinking religionists. First a Roman Catholic student, with leave of superiors, attacked its views of the pagan philosophy and mythology, which no doubt raised many questions. Then a Protestant divine, Mr. John Turner, accused the author of being a tritheistic a sect for which he supposes the author may have a kindness because he loves hard words. He is certain that Cudworth, if not a tritheistic, is something else without either stick or trick, and that the most charity itself can allow the doctor, if it were to step forth and speak his most favourable character to the world, is that he is an Arian, a Socinian, a deist. Even Dryden, whose easy indifference and professed conversion to Romanism very well represent the spirit of the time, had a hit at the author of the intellectual system as having raised such strong objections against the being of a god and providence that many think he has not answered them. There is never anybody so unthinkingly orthodox as the clever man of the world when he thinks it necessary to interest himself in religion. The broad, open-eyed candor and large-mindedness of Cudworth were unintelligible to the definite, facile, and sharply molding intellect of the author of the Religio Laici and the Hind and the Panther. Cudworth's fate as a Christian thinker was discouraging, and he felt it to be so, but it was, as Shaftesbury said, only the common fate of those who dare to appear fair authors. The religious world welcomes decision rather than frankness, and is still capable of accusing an author, quote, of giving the upper hand to the atheists for having only stated their reasons and those of their adversaries fairly together, close quote. Fifty years later, Warburton, who greatly admired and appreciated the author of The Intellectual System, speaks with some bitterness of the treatment which he received and its effects. Although few, he says, were able to follow his profound arguments, yet, quote, the very slowest were able to unravel his secret purpose, to tell the world that he was an atheist in his heart and an Arian in his book. Would the reader know the consequence? Why the zealots inflamed the bigots? Twas the time's plague when madmen led the blind, the silly calumny was believed. The much-injured author grew disgusted, his ardor slackened, and the rest and far greatest part of the defense never appeared. Close quote. In course of time, however, the great power and learning of the intellectual system secured it a worthy reception with all thoughtful and scholarly readers both at home and abroad. Leclerc, when he commenced his Bibliothèque choisie in 1703, gave large extracts from it, which engaged him in a controversy with Bale, He expressed at the same time a desire that the work should be translated into Latin for the benefit of continental students. Several attempts were made to do this, but the task was not accomplished till thirty years later, when Mosheim, so well known for his labours in church history, published his translation with many valuable notes and illustrations, which have been again translated into English, and are found in one of the most common editions of the intellectual system. A translation was also begun into French in the beginning of last century, but never completed. In the meantime, the work was abridged in English by Mr. Wise, a fellow of Exeter College, Oxford, under the title of A Confutation of the Reason and Philosophy of Atheism. This abridgment was published at London in 1706, and prefaced by an elaborate introduction in which Cudworth's views regarding the Trinity and the resurrection of the body are examined at length. With the publication of his great work, Cudworth's life may be said to terminate, although he survived ten years later. Whether or not it be altogether true, as Warburton says, that the reception of his work disgusted him, there is reason to think that his intellectual activity was not prolonged beyond the date of its appearance. In the same year he was made a prebendary of Gloucester. Probably the same influence which had befriended him at the restoration secured for him this final promotion. He died at Cambridge on the 26th of June, 1688, in the 71st year of his age, and was interred in the chapel of the college in which he had so long lived as master. Of his personal character and manners we have no description, nor is it easy to discern the familiar lineaments of the man, as he lived and moved among his friends, through all the meagre and desultory vagueness of Birch's account, or any other notices of his life which have come down to us. In his correspondence with Worthington we have seen some trace of a slight narrowness and jealousy of temper, but this is a mere transitory ebullition, which after all may mean very little. Moore's more agile and discursive spirit had outstripped him in his favourite intellectual ambition of writing a book on natural ethics, and some soreness of feeling was excusable in the circumstances. Such indications as we can gather point upon the whole to an elevated and noble character, a spirit not only free from the vulgar sectarianisms of the time, but intent upon high objects, and generous as it was lofty. His portrait conveys the same impression. If somewhat heavily lined, like that of Witchcoat, and even touched with austerity in its massive and long-drawn features, it is also full of sweetness. The face is that of a severe and powerful, but also a gentle-minded and tolerantly meditative student. We have already alluded to Cudworth's daughter, and our notice of the father would not be complete without adding a few words concerning her. She inherited his metaphysical genius, and may be said by herself to deserve a niche in the history of English philosophy, but she is chiefly known as the fast and cordial friend of Locke, who died at her house in 1704, where he had resided in retirement some years before. She became the second wife of Sir Francis Masham of Oates in the county of Essex and her son rose to some distinction as a master in the court of chancery her chief writing was a discourse concerning the love of god published at london in sixteen ninety six she introduces this tract with observing that whatever reproaches have been made by the romanists on the one hand of the want of books of devotion in the church of england or by the dissenters on the other of a dead and lifeless way of preaching it may be affirmed that there cannot anywhere be found so good a collection of discourses on moral subjects as might be made of english sermons and other treatises of that nature written by the divines of our church which books are certainly of themselves the greatest and most general use of any and do most conduce to that which is the chief aim of christianity a good life she then animadverts upon those who undervalue morality and others who strain the duties of it to an impracticable pitch, and pretend to ascend by it to something beyond or above it. And afterwards proceeds to consider the conduct of those who build their practical and devotional discourses upon principles which will not bear the test, but which oblige them to lay down such assertions of morality as sober and well-disposed Christians cannot understand to be practicable and here she applies herself to the examination of Mr. John Norris's scheme in his practical discourses and other treatises, wherein he maintains that, quote, mankind are obliged strictly as their duty to love with desire nothing but God only, every degree of desire of any creature whatsoever being sinful, which assertion Mr. Norris defends upon this ground that God, not the creature, is the immediate efficient cause of our sensations for whatsoever gives us pleasure has a right to our love but god only gives us pleasure therefore he only has a right to our love this hypothesis is considered with great accuracy and ingenuity by lady masham and the bad consequences of it represented in a strong light her discourse was translated into french by mr peter cost and printed at amsterdam in seventeen o five footnote norris the famous idealist rector of bemerton whose connection with Moore and the Platonic movement will afterwards appear. End of footnote. Lady Masham was plainly a genuine disciple of her father's rational theology, distinguished like him by breadth of insight, candor, and love of truth, as well as by unusual learning, sagacity, and penetration. It is interesting to connect through her the names of Cudworth, Newton, and Locke. The history of philosophy is lightened and even its higher significance brought into relief by any episode which, like this, unveils its diffusive influence and the pleasant friendships which underlie and unite its great movements. 2. In now turning to examine Cudworth's work as a Christian teacher and thinker, there are three main aspects in which he may be regarded. First, as a preacher, second, as a theistic thinker, and third, as a moralist. The same lines of thought more or less appear in all his writings, and there is a specially intimate relation betwixt his higher philosophy, unfolded in the intellectual system, and his views as a moralist. But it will conduce to clearness and help to bring out more fully both the value of his labours and his position in connection with his time and the school to which he belongs, to consider him in these successive points of view. 1. Our knowledge of Cudworth as a preacher rests upon two sermons one of which, as already mentioned, he delivered before the House of Commons on the 31st of March, 1647. This sermon of itself places him in the highest rank as a preacher. Large in thought and eloquent in expression, it is instinct throughout with a glow of feeling and harmony and grace of composition which are too rare with him. It is a pleasing surprise after his earlier writings, published with only his initials in 1642. These serve to show the bent of his mind, and the instruments of his early culture, the recondite sources from which he fed his great intellectual appetite. But he is hardly as yet in them thinking for himself. With great acuteness, ingenuity, and learning, they have something also of the rawness and pedantic parade of acquired learning, which belong to a young writer. But in his sermon before the House of Commons, his mind moves with power, ease, and felicity. There is everywhere the inspiration of a living and noble sense of truth, a perception of its divine catholicity and grandeur, which raises him far above the sectarian contests waged in its name, while the circumstances in which he speaks, the great crisis and the great audience before him, give an unwanted wing to his thoughts and an unwanted rapidity and symmetry to their form. We give a few extracts. Quote. INK AND PAPER CAN NEVER MAKE US CHRISTIANS can never beget a new nature, a living principle in us, can never form Christ or any true notions of spiritual things in our hearts. The gospel, that new law which Christ delivered to the world, is not merely a dead letter without us, but a quickening spirit within us. Cold theorems and maxims, dry and jejune disputes, lean syllogistical reasonings, could never yet of themselves beget the least glimpse of true heavenly light, the least sap of saving knowledge in any heart. All this is but the groping of the poor dark spirit of man after truth, to find it out with his own endeavors and feel it with his own cold and benumbed hands. Words and syllables, which are but dead things, cannot possibly convey the living notions of heavenly truths to us. The secret mysteries of a divine life, of a new nature, of Christ formed in our hearts, they cannot be written or spoken. Language and expressions cannot reach them. Neither can they be ever truly understood, except the soul itself be kindled from within and awakened into the life of them. A painter that would draw a rose, though he may flourish some likeness of it in figure and color, yet he can never paint the scent and fragrancy. Or, if he would draw a flame, he cannot put a constant heat into his colors. He cannot make his pencil drop a sound, as the echo in the epigram mocks at him all the skill of cunning artisans and mechanics cannot put a principle of life into a statue of their own making neither are we able to enclose in words and letters the life soul and essence of any spiritual truths and as it were to incorporate it in them again the best assurance that any one can have of his interest in god is doubtless the conformity of his soul to him those divine purposes whatsoever they be are altogether unsearchable and unknowable by us. They lie wrapped up in everlasting darkness, and covered in a deep abyss. Who is able to fathom the bottom of them? Let us not, therefore, make this our first attempt towards God and religion, to persuade ourselves strongly of these everlasting decrees. For if at our first flight we aim so high, we shall haply but scorch our wings, and be struck back with lightning as those giants of old were, that would needs attempt to assault heaven. AND IT IS INDEED A MOST GIGANTIC ESSAY TO THRUST OURSELVES SO BOLDLY INTO THE LAP OF HEAVEN. IT IS A PRANK OF NIMROD, OF A MIGHTY HUNTER, THUS RUDELY TO DEAL WITH GOD, AND TO FORCE HEAVEN AND HAPPINESS BEFORE HIS FACE, WHETHER HE WILL OR NO. THE WAY TO OBTAIN A GOOD ASSURANCE, INDEED, OF OUR TITLE TO HEAVEN, IS NOT TO CLAMBER UP TO IT BY A LADDER OF OUR OWN UNGROUNDED PERSUASIONS, BUT TO DIG AS LOW AS HELL BY HUMILITY AND SELF-DENIAL IN OUR OWN HEARTS and though this may seem to be the farthest way about yet it is indeed the nearest and safest way to it we must as the greek epigram speaks ascend downward and descend upward if we would indeed come to heaven or get any true persuasion of our title to it o divine love the sweet harmony of souls the music of angels the joy of god's own heart the very darling of his bosom the source of true happiness the pure quintessence of heaven that which reconciles the jarring principles of the world and makes them all chime together. That which melts men's hearts into one another. Let us endeavour to promote the gospel of peace, the dove-like gospel with a dove-like spirit. This was the way by which the gospel at first was propagated in the world. Christ did not cry nor lift up his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he did not break and the smoking flax he did not quench. And yet he brought forth judgment unto victory. He whispered the gospel to us from Mount Zion in a still voice, and yet the sound thereof went out quickly throughout all the earth. The gospel at first came down upon the world gently and softly, like the dew upon Gideon's fleece, and yet it quickly soaked quite through it, and doubtless this is the most effectual way to promote it further. Sweetness and ingenuity will more command men's minds than passion, sourness, and severity, as the soft pillow sooner breaks the flint than the hardest marble. Let us follow truth in love and of the two indeed be contented rather to miss of the conveying of a speculative truth than to part with love when we would convince men of any error by the strength of truth let us withal pour the sweet balm of love upon their heads truth and love are the two most powerful things in the world and when they both go together they cannot easily be withstood the golden beams of truth and the silken cords of love twisted together will draw men on with a sweet violence, whether they will or no. Let us take heed we do not sometimes call that zeal for God and his gospel, which is nothing else but our own tempestuous and stormy passion. True zeal is a sweet, heavenly, and gentle flame, which maketh us active for God, but always within the sphere of love. It never calls for fire from heaven to consume those who differ a little from us in their apprehensions. It is like that kind of lightning, which the philosophers speak of, that melts the sword within, but singeth not the scabbard. It strives to save the soul, but hurteth not the body. True zeal is a loving thing, and makes us always active to edification and not to destruction. Close quote. The spirit of Cudworth's sermons represents the earlier and less systematic phase of the Cambridge movement as we see it in Witchcoat. The attitude of the two preachers towards the religious questions and features of the time is very much alike. There is the same condemnation of its dogmatic and formal extravagances, of its assumptions of peculiar knowledge and zeal, and generally of its love of religious agitation rather than of religious practice. While in opposition there appear the same leading ideas, of the coordinate relation of all knowledge, the complementary character of philosophy and religion, and the essential connection of religion with life and morality. a. He is eloquent in favour of all true knowledge which of itself naturally tends to God, who is the fountain of it, and would ever be raising our souls up upon its wings thither, did not we detain it and hold it down in unrighteousness. All philosophy to a wise man, to a truly sanctified mind, is but matter for divinity to work upon. Religion is the queen of all those inward endowments of the soul, and all pure natural knowledge, all virgin and undeflowered arts and sciences, are her handmaids that rise up and call her blessed. Close quote. There is no thought more frequently reproduced in all the Cambridge writings than this of the harmonious relation of philosophy and religion, of culture and piety, of reason and faith. The thought takes various expression and was considered of vital importance for the time. It would be far from true to say that Puritanism was unfavourable to learning. In its higher representatives it was eminently learned. It was nonetheless its tendency in all its extreme forms to depreciate natural knowledge and separate the provinces of rational inquiry and religion. The very name of reason excited suspicion, and was supposed to carry with it the taint of heresy. This tone was all the more fatal in the seventeenth century that philosophy was then beginning its independent career and ready from its side to isolate and exalt the spirit of rational thought discredited by the prevailing religionism. It was therefore a real service to bring forward the harmonious relations of philosophy and religion, and to emphasize the spiritual as the higher side of human nature, and not a factitious addition to it made by some process of religious magic. To separate religion from thought is to convert it into a superstition. To separate thought and philosophy from religion is to take from them their highest inspiration. No adequate philosophy can ignore the great problems of life or turn aside from those spiritual realities which are the crown of all our inward endowments and move with such force human history. Division of labor need not imply contradiction of interpretation. A philosophy which is true to facts should find its complement rather than its antagonist in a religion which is also true to facts a faith which is real, and a reason which is right, support and do not displace one another. This was the confident idea of the Cambridge divines, and their instinct was right even where their own practice failed. They were by no means free from irrationalities of their own, but at least they kept aloof from that mass of traditionary and scholastic theory which overlaid the Puritan theology, and which has been so little able to withstand the sifting processes of modern inquiry. They gave their chief interest and study to the moral side of Christianity and the divine power which it reveals in the life and sacrifice of divine love. They certainly never show any jealousy of the progress of thought. They know of no conflicts betwixt reason and faith to be soldered up by theological or other devices. Their ideal devotion to reason is unbounded. It is the sovereign of the harmonical or rightly adjusted soul to which, Reenthroned in her majestic seat and reinvested with her ancient power, all lower faculties and interests must give an account of themselves. End of chapter Four, Part Two.